Welcome to the Hatcher's weekly podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It. I'm Alex Rich. If the GW community awaits the administration's decision regarding whether to hold on-campus classes this fall, today I'll be speaking with three experts who might be able to provide some insight as to what GW will decide to do. These experts have expertise ranging from public health to university administration to covering higher education, so we'll be addressing what the next few months could look like for GW students from a variety of angles. First, we'll specifically be discussing the health side behind a potential return to campus. My first guest is Dr. Georges Benjamin, who's been the executive director of the American Public Health Association since 2002 and was previously the secretary of the Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Dr. Benjamin, thank you for joining me. I want to start off with the fact that the number of known cases in the DMV as of this week was around 28,000, according to the Washington Post, and around 3,000 in the district. What should students who are still living in D.C. know about the state of the virus at this time? I, I think we know that we're still having a fair amount, of course, of community transformation of the virus and that, uh, um, you know, the likelihood of us returning um, to what we consider the normal environment is um, um, that's not going to happen anytime soon. And so we're going to have to continue how we figure out how to readjust um, for certainly the next several months. Um, kind of in this remote environment, um, um, and things will be a lot different than they were this time a year ago. And for students in the coming summer months especially, do you think the situation will remain most of the same in D.C.? I think they will. I think students that are, um, that you know, that are learning to um, do their studies remotely are going to get very good at it because I think we're going to see remote classes uh, far into the near future. Um, so that means, you know, getting getting better at uh, um, using whatever technology you use, whether you're using Blackboard or whether or not you're using um, Zoom-like technologies for, for class, to, um, other social media tools. Um, we're just going to have to get, get very, you know, very much used to that. Uh, and that includes doing, you know, data searches for, you know, research journal articles to help us with our studies. How do you think that's going to affect the rest of college life overall? You know, it's obviously a more communal setting. And, you know, do you think students would be allowed to return to the, their dorms or would they have to stay in their current home locations? Yeah, I think the dorm question is is, is, is too early to know about the dorms, mm-hmm. um, for sure. Um, but, you know, one of the interesting things I know about college life is that we adapt. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, um, I, I think... Uh, uh, the, social, the, the social media environment still allows us to engage with one another actively. Um, again, FaceTime and other um, face-to-face through video um, opportunities there um, to still engage your friends, still talk to folks. Um, I do think we'll be able to engage in small numbers of people, you know, but I think the big barbecues and the large gatherings, are, I think those are um, going to get put off for a while. Yeah, and in a similar way that a lot of universities decided to call off all of their spring semesters, you know, essentially in unison, do you think that the response to the fall semester would be similar as well? I do. I do. I, I know several, I've heard of uh, several universities are that are saying, look, you know, we don't know what it's going to be like, but let's just plan for, for a remote uh, semester, at least the fall semester. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, if the disease um, doesn't necessarily go away or rebounds in the fall, we're already prepared for it. Um, so I think I think people are trying to fix their their plans based on what they know, 
and taking the most conservative approach, um, recognizing that you can still deliver a highly qualified education um, remotely. I mean, there are just many, many schools that have demonstrated that the brick and mortar uh, environment was becoming a little bit uh, um, unnecessary for all studies. I mean, clearly there are some studies that you can only do, you know, together. Um, but, you know, they'll have to figure out how they adapt those as well. So when do you think for college campuses then a return would be allowed? You know, do you think a vaccine would be necessary or would increased testing allow for a faster return? Clearly, testing is the key. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, right now there are some studies that have been done that show it's early studies that about 4% of the population um, has been exposed to the virus. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't really say yet they're 4% are immune, but let's just say 4% of the population at least has been exposed to the virus and probably is immune. Well, we need to get to 70%. Mm -hmm. So we got a lot more people that either have to get a vaccine once we get it or have to be exposed to the virus so we get what's called herd immunity, um, which is basically a phenomenon where um, if I'm infected, I can't infect you because you're already um, been, have already been exposed to the virus. And you can break up that pattern when you have herd immunity. So we need 70% of the population to either be immunized or have had the exposure to the virus, whether you got really sick or not, before this thing stops. So um, we've got a ways to go. And I know other schools like GW's Peer School, Boston University, have weighed a preliminary plan of pushing classes on campus back to Jan January of 2021. You know, is that more realistic in your view than the fall? I think so. I think that's much more realistic than the fall. Dr. Benjamin, thanks so much for your time. You thank you, and you have a good day. Next, I'll be discussing the more administrative side behind the pandemic fallout and some of the alternatives to a full on-campus return in the fall. Accordingly, my next guest is Dr. Lynn Pascarella, who has served as the president of the Association of American Colleges and Universities since 2016 and has held numerous roles in university administrations, including as president of Mount Holyoke College from 2010 to 2016. Dr. Pascarella, thanks so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. So as the virus continues to spread, you know, there seems to be increasing uncertainty as to whether in-person classes can resume by the fall. You know, do you think universities need to start thinking about their own contingency plans moving forward? Absolutely. All of the college and university presidents that I've been talking to are doing a wide range of planning around contingencies, looking at the possibility of having students return to campus, having a hybrid model where uh, some return and others don't, or having all remote learning for the rest of the calendar year. So, I mean, among those different options in terms of whether it's a hybrid learning environment with socially distanced classes, either maybe a delayed arrival to campus or continued online learning as it is, you know, do you think that that's something that's going to be addressed by university bases depending on their geographical location or anything you know, it's something that's going to apply across the board where universities kind of fall in line with how everyone else is reacting? Great question. Geographical location certainly matters. Uh, the hotspots for the coronavirus will need to have different guidelines and, and sets of plans in place. But we're hearing that there may be a resurgence that's even more serious in the fall, in November and December. And so we need to take that into account as well as we engage in scenario planning. 
So, I mean, do you think, you know, a lot of public health officials, we spoke to Dr. George Benjamin of the American Public Health Association also for this show, you know, some of the key indicators for allowing at least even a partial return would likely be aggressive testing and contract tracing. You know, do you think universities should, in good faith, you know, allow students back to campus if those measures aren't in place yet, especially in hot spots like GWs in Washington, D.C.? This is an issue that individual college and university leaders need to assess. Uh, it's a, a critical matter of risk assessment, knowing that in order to ser- serve their mission, they need to safeguard the well-being of the students, faculty, and staff. So it's not just a matter of testing students. And we look at some institutions like Purdue, where their president has said there's a 0% incidence of people dying from the virus um, during uh, from, with traditional age college students. Well, that's not the case. But even if it were the case, that doesn't mean that the faculty and staff are protected from getting the virus. And so we have to consider the entire community and the extent to which college campuses serving as anchor institutions are engaged with the public on a daily basis. And I also want to expand more on the point you raised about international students. You know, GW has brought that up as a potential problem that the virus has created in terms of um, especially future enrollment as well for um, international students. You know, can you expand a little bit more on that point? We've already seen a dramatic decline in the number of international students over the past few years. It's dropped as much as 14%. And at many institutions, the mission is grounded in the richness and diversity of the student body. And so this will be a significant disadvantage for colleges and universities as we look at travel bans. Um, Right now, the the president has uh, bans against certain people coming into the country. So how will we achieve our equity goals and promote student success under the circumstances? This is what professors, college presidents, and boards are considering at this moment in time. I mean, how do you think as well, you know, administrations can work to especially ensure diversity and inclusion moving forward as well, not only in, in enrollment, you know, but also when they begin, well, in terms of retaining faculty as well, because I know GW has not done this yet, but other universities have um, started, you know, furloughing employees and GW has instituted a hiring freeze and different things like that. That's so important. I worry that there will be an over-reliance on contingent faculty, not because of the quality of contingent faculty, but because of the failure to protect their long-term interests. And so the equity issues and the disproportionate burden it places on women, on faculty of color, is a real concern. In looking at access to excellence in higher education and ways to ensure that students can continue their education or begin their education, we have to look at government regulations that create barriers to success. And so with the latest stimulus package, colleges and universities have been given a significant amount of money, $14 million, 50% of that, which is mandated to go to student financial aid. And yet undocumented students and students who are not going full time are not eligible for that money. And so just look at the community college system, an institution like Miami-Dade that has 140,000 students, many of whom cannot afford 
to go full-time because they are working full-time. They're not eligible. And so what are those barriers that are in place that need to be addressed is, is the responsibility that all colleges and universities have in working with the government to change regulations. And I mean, lastly, I want to touch on um, a point about, you know, students, many students depend on essential campus resources, you know, whether it be mental health services, you know, campus jobs for money, um, you know, physical resources, even like library and lab materials. I know some of those, a lot of those materials have been made accessible online. Um, you know, access to professors, different things like that. You know, how can universities continue to tackle those concerns, you know, for the time being, you know, even into the fall? All of the universities and colleges that I've been talking to are paying close attention to the ways in which they can deliver these services online. But when I mentioned the showcasing of the economic segregation in higher education as a result of this crisis, we know that the expansive digital divide is such that even if the resources are made available, many students don't have access to them, especially international students. But even in the United States, in rural areas that are most under-resourced and underserved, students will not be able to take advantage of those resources. So what are the ways in which we can work together to promote access? Again, this gets back to working with business and industry and providing resources necessary to ensure that all students can thrive in this moment. Dr. Pascarella, thanks so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thank you. My final guest today is someone who has had her eye on university response to the pandemic around the country and can add some insight into what different schools might be expecting moving forward. That's why I'm now joined by Lindsay Ellis, a senior reporter at the Chronicle of Higher Education who covers research universities. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So universities are already beginning to put contingency plans in place for the fall. You know, what are some of the proposals that you've seen universities make so far? So there's a lot of wait and see. I think that's been the typical case so far. Um, of institutions that have set out a plan, they've said, we are going to decide by X date. And if you are a returning student, it would be really helpful for you to register for classes. So we have a sense of what spaces we'll need and um, what we need to be preparing for or thinking about. Um, we've had two cases so far where people have expressed a, a little bit more certainty or at least a little bit of, um, you know, here's, here's specifically what we are thinking at this point. Um, Cal State Fullerton's provost said earlier this week at a town hall meeting that she is asking faculty to prepare to start virtual with the hope that they can move back to in-person operations as the semester goes on. Um, and Purdue University's president um, was very, very bullish on returning in person for the beginning of fall 2020 semester. So, um, you know, and, and we've seen a few other statements here and there with campus president saying we're expecting this or we're hoping for this, but um, there's been very little definitive um, plans that have been announced. And what about for students who, you know, may have already tested positive for the virus? I know the Chronicle had done some reporting on, you know, whether those students might be allowed back on campus and how, you know, that split would play out. 
Um, well, a lot of the plans for on-campus operations seem to rely on the idea that um, universities will be able to test students widely and also track their behavior widely. That is a very, very ambitious goal given the state of what testing exists now. Um, the the plan from Purdue, for example, that that was rolled out this week, um, or the preliminary ideas for for what Purdue is considering, included, you know, mass testing of students, being able to isolate those who test positive and those who came in contact with those who tested positive. Um, it's it's really ambitious, and um, it's not something that we've seen colleges do this at this point. Yeah, and you know. Speaking on the revenue point, um, GW is projected to lose roughly $38 million through June 30th based on, you know, recent data that's available. That's not even including the summer term. You know, what are some of the uh, major financial burdens that you're expecting universities to endure throughout this? Um, it, it depends in a lot of cases on the type of institution. So, um universities do a lot outside of teaching and learning that brings in revenue traditionally. Um, certainly there's enrollment, and I think that's a really big piece of this. Room and board, which a lot of institutions have refunded. But think of all of the auxiliary operations that happen on a college campus, from summer intern housing, for example, to you know the events that come to campus, the conferences, um, selling tickets to performances, um, parking on a lot of campus, you know, campuses, students and faculty pay, pay universities for parking. So auxiliary, um, revenues I think will, will be hit, um, campuses that have hospitals and especially those that own their hospitals, um, are experiencing big shortfalls in, revenue because non-essential clinical procedures in a lot of places have stopped, um, and that's a big revenue hit. Um, and people for the next fiscal year have their eye on research and what um, outside research funding is going to be like. And you know, on the front of, you know, GW specifically has not um, made the decision to for low employees yet. There have instituted a hiring freeze you know, what have you seen uh, at other, you know, let's say, you know, smaller institutions in terms of how they're dealing with, you know, their employees? It's been a range. Um, some staff have been furloughed, um, you know, maybe a, by a few days or for a longer stretch. Um, there are immediate revenue shortfalls and universities are turning to furloughs as a place to make up some of that revenue. Um, it's something that people express really deep regret over um, and is is really painful for university staff and, and some faculty to experience. Um, but it is something that we are starting to see play out at campuses. Lindsay, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this week. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by Alec Rich and produced by Gwen Wheeler. Music is produced by Aux Studio. Thank you to Dr. Georges Benjamin, Dr. Lynn Pascarella, and Lindsay Ellis for joining me.